Kiana, did you need this or no? Okay, good morning. Can everyone hear me? Working? Yeah. No gruffness from the beard. Okay, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue in our uh, time in the book here. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for the day. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, for us to come together as Christians. Lord, I pray that uh, you would guide our Our thoughts, uh, our words, our focus this morning, Lord, Uh, God, help me to speak clearly about your principles and your word. Lord, help us to rightly understand uh, the main question of this chapter, which is, what is idolatry? God, allow us to define that by biblical precepts and and your law and your word. Lord, help us to uh, really gain insight into our own lives and how this applies to us and then how it applies to the wider world as well. Uh, God, help us to start with our own selves and then look outward. And uh, Lord, give us wisdom as we do this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So first, any, any questions from last week? Try to open that up first. Any questions from last week? No? Okay, so this week we're going to be starting on chapter 3. Let me go ahead and tell you um, that next week, uh, Lord willing, we are going to do chapters 4 and 5. Okay, chapters 4 and 5. Remember how I told you that I wanted to do the appendices to the book as well because I thought that uh, at least most of them have some valuable information in there for us. So that next week we're going to we're going to take the time and we're, uh, we're going to start that. We're going to actually go through a couple chapters at a time. Uh, he breaks these up into three chapter units. So my plan tentatively, and I'll let you know week to week, is to do two chapters out of the unit and then one chapter out of the unit. Two chapters out of the unit and then one chapter of the, out of the unit until we finish the series in May in which we'll have uh, some concluding stuff. So this morning, however, we're just going to focus on chapter three. So before I read anything in the book... Let's start with a question. Let's start with a question. We're going um, to, I want to do, like I normally try to do anyway, that, uh, some time de- defining terms. Defining terms. And we want to define our terms biblically speaking. So we want to think about this morning, what is an idol? Or we might phrase it this way, what is idolatry? What is an idol? What do you guys think an idol is? Okay, something that you worship, something that you worship, something that you worship outside of who or what, maybe. Anything I give more value to than God. Okay, um, can an idol be a thing? Yes. Does it always have to be a thing? No, it can be an emotion. It can be uh, like an affection toward something uh, even good. Many times when we look in Scripture, we see that, there, uh, that Christ accuses uh, people of idolatry for, for misrepresenting certain things. Today we're going to start, though, we're going we're gonna to try to flip and just try to look at a, a passage that I think is really relevant for us, and it's Jeremiah chapter 44. So if you guys want to go ahead and turn there, that's where we're going to start this morning before we even get into the book. Um, I think he, did a, he does a good job kind of starting to frame things for us, but I, I want to get a little harder definition maybe than what he, what he initially gives us. I want to go a little bit more in depth. So we have a really good grasp of that. So what commandments do you think in Scripture, if we go back, this is another question before we read here. What, what commandments, remember we talked about the moral law and the abiding nature of the moral law, does idolatry break, specifically? Say it a little louder, I'm sorry. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Yeah, so the first commandment. Is there another commandment that it breaks? The second commandment as well. Which, what is the second commandment? Yeah, so we shouldn't. So we shall have no other gods, right, before God. And then the second commandment, which is an outflow from that, is that we shouldn't make anything in an image of God. So we shouldn't worship any created thing as God, nor should we prescribe worship to anything as Yahweh that is not himself. Do you see that? There's two things there. So, for instance, we shouldn't worship Baal, which is uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today, right? Or Molech in the Old Testament. But we should also simultaneously not create a false image of God himself, the true God of the Bible. That's what, uh, that's what uh, Aaron was guilty of in Exodus chapter 32. Remember, he wasn't making a quote-unquote false God. He said, behold, your God Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so there are two aspects to it that we have to think about. We cannot ever worship a false god. We also cannot ever worship our god in a way that he is not prescribed. Both of those things are idolatry. Okay, both of those things are idolatry, fundamentally. So, um, in his book, um, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry, G.K. Beale says this about idolatry. He says, before launching into our study, I need to define idolatry. Martin Luther's larger catechism discussion of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, included whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Okay? Make both God and an idol. We might say it like that. I might add here, whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. Ultimate security. Okay? So those things that we ascribe emotional affection to above God. Okay? We have to make that clarification because if we don't, we're going to allow the world and the people of social justice to push on us and say that any desire for good things is idolatry, and that's wrong. And we want to make sure that we, we, we parse that out, okay? It's, it's not that good things are idolatry in and of themselves. They're not. It's not wrong to desire material prosperity so that you can secure uh, your, things for your family and for your children and for your grandchildren. It actually says that in Proverbs, that a godly man leaves an inheritance, okay, for those who, who follow behind him. It's that when you place your affection and security on those things above God, they become idols. Keep that in your mind, okay? That's really important. That's really important as we read this chapter. Any questions so far? So he actually says this in his book here on page 17. He says uh, what I said a little bit ago, that the word idolatry can refer to worship of other gods besides the true God or the reverence of images. Okay, or the reverence of images. So first and second commandment. All right, so Jeremiah chapter 44, and we're going to read, this is a lengthy passage. We're going to read 1 through 19. 1 through 19. What I fear in, um, in the church today is that we, we, can, we do a decent job of recognizing that we, if, if we uh, confess Christ anyway, um, that we should not worship Allah or we should not worship Buddha. But I think we fail to recognize some of the other things that we put our affections on above God. Okay? Above God. It says, The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdol, at Tophanes, I can't, I'm sorry, I have trouble pronouncing biblical words sometimes, and Noph, and in the country of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are a desolation, 
and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, they nor you nor their fathers. However, I sent you to all my servants, the prophets. I sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as it is this day. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil again against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant out of Judah, leaving none to remain, in that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among the nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, the wickedness, your own wickedness, and the wickedness of your wives, which they have committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not been humbled to this day, nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you or your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all of Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go in the land of Egypt to dwell there. And they shall, be all, they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest, by the sword and by famine, and they shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem, by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive, lest they shall return to the land of Judah, to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return except those who escape. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, Was it with repentance? I want you to notice this. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of your own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of food, were well off, and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven... And pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. The women also said, and when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out our drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? Okay, that's where we're going to stop. Does God take idolatry seriously? Does God take idolatry seriously? Is it a light thing? Is there any sort of like moral equivalence that it's just a problem that we experience? It's a a situational thing because of our circumstances. Does God blame any of that? It's because of how we grew up. It's because I didn't have a father. It's because I didn't have a mother. It's because my brother was mean to me. God doesn't excuse any of that okay he excuses none of it and God will only have worship for himself look at some things in this passages 
passage with me. In verses 3 through 6, what did they worship? What did they worship? Verses 3 through 6, what did they worship? Other gods. How did they show that they worshipped other gods? They made offerings. Has God ever authorized other offerings to other gods? He has not, right? Verses 7 and 8. Where did, they, where did they turn for security? Where did they turn for security? Did they turn to God? Where did they turn to for security? Say it again. The Egyptian gods. And to what else? Egypt itself. And we see this throughout Israel's history. Think of immediately after God delivers them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What was their refrain as soon as they started to struggle? Let us return where? To Egypt. Why? Because they gave us food, they gave us drink, they gave us shelter. Okay? They gave us food, they gave us drink, they gave us shelter. So not only did Israel turn to false gods, they looked at the state of Egypt as a false god. Because Egypt provided for them, okay, I want you to see this and think about it, where we're at today. Because Egypt provided for them things of need, who did they trust rather than God? Do we see some of that today? Okay, we do, we do. This is going to be pertinent later in the chapter when he starts describing the different idols, okay? Keep that in mind. So, ironically, what Israel desired to do was return to slavery, okay? That's what they desired to do. They could not see freedom in the responsibility to follow God according to his statutes and commandments, Rather, they always wish to return to slavery. You see this refrain in Paul. Do not submit yourselves again to the yoke of slavery. Romans 6, in terms of sin, right? That's what God calls us to do, is turn away from those things. Any questions so far? Hopefully you can see where we're going with this. Hopefully you can see where we're going with this. Verses 9 and 10. First, I want you to know who set the example of idolatry. Who led in this? What does the list start with? Say it again. Their fathers. Okay. I can't hear very well. See, <laughs> when people mumble down at their books, I'm, I'm lost. So their fathers... How, do they, how are their fathers described? Men and what? The men and kings, right? So let's ask ourselves a question. Who leads in idolatry? The men of the nation. The men of the nation. Look at verse 19. Who gave the women permission to burn incense to the other gods? This gives us two principles. We men are always responsible for how the culture proceeds toward or away from godliness. And every time we allow women to lead in the culture, we will also veer off in the other direction. God made men to lead, and when men fail to lead, they fall into sin. And whole nations, cultures, and families will follow with them. It's a perfect example of this. Think about Adam and Eve. It's illustrated there too. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, who did God specifically command not to eat of the tree? Adam. Okay, who was ultimately deceived because of the failure of her husband who was with her to lead her and protect her? Eve. Okay? Let's pay attention to these principles. Let's not miss the fact that God's word rings true in every situation. Okay? Every situation. 
verse 10, what did they break? What did they fail to do? Yeah, they didn't follow the laws and statutes of God. Without repeating myself or everything I've said for the last four weeks. First principles are first principles. God gets to define the reality. Last week we talked about it as a box. God defines our existence, what we are called to do, the parameters of hum- what, what human beings are made to do, and how we worship Him. Okay? How we worship Him. What does God promise to do in verses 11 through 14? He promises to press a covenant judgment against them, right? He said, cut off all of Judah, right? What did God promise to do in Deuteronomy chapter 28 if we went back there and looked? He promised blessing for faith and destruction for disobedience, okay? He promises the same thing for us in Galatians 5. Those who live by the fruit of the Spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live in unfaithfulness by the fruit of the flesh will be cast away from the kingdom of God and will not inherit it. It's the same thing, same principle. So verses 15 through 19, this is what I really want us to focus on, and this is going to kind of lead us into, I wanted to cover those two commandments and how we should obey them, that finding, that finding our ultimate security in anything but God is idolatry. That's displayed in two ways. It's displayed in two ways, by worshiping a false god, and then by falsely worshiping our God. Okay? Which one do you think we struggle with the most? Number two. Okay? In conservative churches. Now, in liberal churches, it's all over the place. Everywhere. So, it's both. Now, what, did the, what was the response of the people? What was the response of the people to God's rebuke through Jeremiah? Mm-hmm. They said we're going to keep doing what we're doing, which was what? Worshiping the Queen of Heaven, the Queen of Heaven so a false god. Why did they say that? Yeah, material, apparent material blessing. Apparent material blessing, right? So they trusted in their senses rather than in God's word. They trust in what they perceived rather than trusting in who created everything that they perceived, right? This is idolatry. When we place our trust in anything outside of God's definition of that thing, okay? When we place our security in anything that is outside of God's definition of that thing, okay? Does that make sense? Everybody getting that? Can we see that illustrated in this passage? Okay, any questions so far? All right, open your books. We're going to start reading through this, uh, through the book here. I'll come back to passage later. All right, the idolatry question. So that's what we just spent some time defining, okay? I wanted you to see tangible examples of it from the scriptures, right? And what the definitions of those things are. So the breaking of the first and second commandment. We bow down to another God. I'm going to keep repeating this because I really want you to get it. We're going to bow down to another God. Or we're going to falsely worship our God. Okay? That's also idolatry. That's also idolatry. All right. Last paragraph. It says, we rarely... Last paragraph on page 28. I'm sorry. We rarely recognize our idols for what they are. At different stages of my life, I would say, I'm using my God-given mind to study theology. I'm just looking for full-time employment doing what I love. I simply want to buy a home for my family. My wife and I want another child. Or I am writing another book. The truth is, 
that each I turned each of these those good things into something ultimate. You kind of can hear a little bit of Beale's definition in there, right? Okay. My sense of self was more wrapped up in those finite pursuits than in the infinite God of the universe. My heart is an idol factory. And if it weren't for those, if it weren't for Jesus taking my place on the cross, I would be on the eternal receiving end of divine justice for worshiping and serving created things rather than my creator. Okay? And you see that kind of played out in Jeremiah 44 when we read that. Now, this is where I want us to be a little careful here, though, just because he doesn't give us a full definition of how he turned those things into idols. Those things in and of themselves, wanting to study hard, okay, wanting to provide for your family, loving your wife, wanting a child, they're not bad things in and of themselves, okay? So let's not, let's not confuse that. I think one of the damaging parts of social justice B is it's always against anything positive. It only wants to tear down and turn everything into a negative. And one of the ways that left-handed Christianity punches right is that it does this. It turns good, godly things that we should desire, okay, that God promises to bless the Old Testament church with for their faith in him into, all, into things that are negative in and of themselves. It's Gnosticism at its root. And what do I mean by Gnosticism? It is a separation of the spiritual and the physical, as though the physical were ungodly, hateful, putrid, wrong, no matter what it is, and it has crept into the modern church, and it is false. Okay? God created us as both physical and spiritual beings, and every single thing we do, own, live, feel belongs to Him. Everything He created was good. That includes the physical earth. Okay, we can't separate those things out. So please don't do that. I'm not saying he's doing that here. Okay, he he just doesn't define it, and he's not required to. I didn't tell him how to write the book or anything. So um, he's not required to do that. But I want you guys not to miss that. Okay, because it is one of those quote unquote flashpoints or big deals in the way that left leaning false social justice pushes into the church. Okay, good things can be good things when they're redeemed by Christ, okay? Your family can be a godly place. Think of what Joshua said. For, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? That wasn't some more abstract, out-of-the-woodwork sort of thing. He meant that, okay? He meant that. So, page 29, Idols of the Right. Idolatry happens when we make some good thing an ultimate thing. That's why I took some time to do define that before, in which case it becomes a destructive thing. Given our tendency to make good things into ultimate things, it would be naive to think idolatry can't creep into our justice pursuits. Social justice B is on the political left, and we will examine its favorite idols shortly, but the political right has its own idols. These include, but aren't limited to, stuff, solitude, sky, and status quo. And then he goes on to des describe those things. Stuff is materialism. So if you desire material prosperity in and of itself, the love of money, right? That is an evil thing. God grants us privileges, blessings. Let's not use the word privileges because that's so tainted in our culture. God grants us blessings, okay, for the purpose of serving him and others, not primarily so that you can serve yourself, okay? Not primarily so you can serve yourself. For instance, in our culture, parents think they have to have two jobs, and therefore they have to send their kids to government schools. If you desire, I'm not saying this is you, but if it is you, think about this. If you desire a 3,000 square foot home, 2,500 square foot home, the nicest, newest cell phone over the godly education of your children, you're in sin. Period. Okay? I'm not saying that that's true of every person who does it. I don't know the motive of every single person in this, in this room. But this is materialism manifested in the conservative church. Okay? That is materialism in the conservative church. If you want more opinion on that, go read Family Driven Faith by Vody Bauckham. Okay? 
All right, solitude. I mean the kind of rugged individualism by which we think every man is an island unto himself instead of seeing ourselves and our actions as inevitably impacting those around us. It cares only about what Francis Schaeffer called those two horrible values of personal peace and affluence with blinders on to the oppressed. By sky, I refer to versions of Christianity in which the whole point is simply to float off into the clouds after we die. This is what I mentioned a few minutes ago about the separation of physical and spiritual. Those people, people who live so much for heaven, they're no earthly good at all. You've heard that quote before. Okay. And by status quo, I mean the tendency to accept things the way they are with no recognition of how many are languishing an urgent need to bring the lordship of Jesus Christ to bear in such tragic spaces. So, what are these things? So, if we fail to live in community, rugged individualism, solitude, if we fail to live in community, we are not representing the true nature of our God. Okay? We are creating him to be something that he is not. For our God does not exist only as one, but also as three. Okay, And the Trinitarian nature of our God sets an example for us that we are not made to live alone. God commands that when he creates Eve. He says it is not, he doesn't command it, he states it, that it is not good for man to live alone. Now that does not just mean that it is good to marry. It also means that God created us to interact with and live with other Christians in a way that brings salt and light to the culture. Okay? It brings salt and light to the culture. We lose that mentality by living toward a skyward way of thought. Okay? Toward a skyward way of thought. Dispensationalism and its fundamental precepts naturally leads toward this way of thinking in its complete dichotomous separation of physical and spiritual. Okay? We can go into that another time if you all have questions. I'm not going to spend all my time trying to discuss that. That would take a while. And if we want peace, if we want to keep the status quo without submission to God, that's wrong. Okay? If the main thing that you care about is your material peace, your ability to sit down on a Saturday and watch a football game, your ability to go to a restaurant that's open. If you care about that above godliness, that's wrong. Okay? That is wrong. Again, that doesn't mean that those things in and of themselves are bad. But if you're talking about how terrible the world is, and you're sitting back in your lazy boy chair to steal an illustration from a pastor that I heard mention something along these lines, turn in your TV on the 300 channels that you have in front of you, and you're failing to proclaim anything according to God's gospel, then you are failing what he has called you to as an individual Christian. He has not called every single person to be a minister of the gospel, but he has called every single person to minister the gospel to those who are around him. Okay? You are not excused because of ignorance. Notice who all God condemned in that passage. It was every person. Okay? Every person. A fifth idol. Skin tone. This one applies to both. Okay? This is not just a right thing. This is not just a right thing. Because critical race theory is an inherently racist. And it is pushed heavily by the left. Okay? Now... Who he mentions in this uh, paragraph about the shootings and stuff associated with that. As far as, uh, as, as far as that goes, those are abominable practices. Any person who perceives themselves as superior to another individual or a, another person as inferior to them based on skin tone is in danger of God's hell. Period. That's left and right. So, people on the right who... Uh, like he talks about in this paragraph, if, if, depending on how you define right, who go to Charlottesville and shoot people or run over them, who uh, go to churches of black parishioners and take guns in there and kill them. They are dastardly human beings. They are terrible people, and God will judge them. People like James Cone on the left, 
who promote black liberation theology. Any person who does that, pastor or not, prominent evangelical or not, Thabiti Anyabwile, Eric Mason, Jamar Tisby, are in danger at the very least of hell in the same way those people are. Any person who attributes blackness or whiteness to inherent sinfulness is in danger of hell. Any person who promotes a skin color in that way is in danger of hell. And I would not extend fellowship to that person personally. Okay? I would call them to repentance. Any person. So that's both. Idols of the left. And there are ways that these bleed over into both. Every single one of these bleed over into both. Materialism is an American problem at large. Okay? But there are, other, there, there are ways that these bleed over into both. So don't hear me just saying that those are idols of the right, nor do hearing me, hear me say that the three that he mentions here, self, state, and social acceptance, are merely of the left. They're both. Okay? They're both. Idols are of human nature. We are always going to worship things other than God. Okay? So, idols of the left. He says this, about halfway down the page. He says, Caring about the oppressed is a good thing. It is a deeply biblical thing. But when we make that... uh, This is on page 30, about halfway down the page. But when we make that good thing an ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive idol. Okay, that's what I said earlier. It becomes a destructive idol. The most pressing cultural and political issues of our day fundamentally are fundamentally worship issues. They are contemporary expressions of our insuppressible religiosity. This is good. It's a good statement. Okay, we would do well to take to wake up to this fact. Do you guys get that? The, they are contemporary expressions of our insuppressible religiosity. We look for gods everywhere we go. Okay? We look for gods everywhere we go. We are willing to worship anything that provides us the appearance. Remember the people in Israel in Jeremiah 44. The appearance of apparent prosperity, peace, and security. We are willing to give ourselves to anything that may provide us that. Okay? All right, idols of self. Page 32, first and third paragraph, first, third, and fourth paragraph. Any questions so far? Absolutely. Yeah, and nothing I said contradicts what you just said. So, so that every person is in danger of hell, but we're specifically dealing with idol worship in this p- particular chapter today. So I'm keeping my comments confined to those specific instances. No. However, there is a difference between people who gladly give themselves to idols versus Christians who constantly seek and are sancti- seek God and are sanctified by the Spirit. And that's the distinction I'm making. And those three people that I mentioned specifically are not on the side of seeking to be sanctified away from their idolatry of race. Full stop for me. I'm not claiming everybody agrees with me on that, but full stop for me. Okay? All right. So all of us are in need of that. All of us are in need of repentance. Many of the idols that I mentioned a little bit ago, the materialism, the sitting back in our chair, apply to us, and we need to be conscious of those things. But what? One of the many differences between God and his unique role, this is the first paragraph on page 32, and us in his unique role in determining not only that humans would exist, we are contingent, he is not, but also why we exist. The built-in meaning of human nature, what we exist for, which is our telos, traces its origin to our transcendent creator. Human nature is not like a bowl of alphabet soup, a senseless jumble of floating letters that can be arranged at our leisure. Human nature is more like a book 
We are authored beings with meaning and purpose that we don't invent, but we discover. Authoring of the meaning of human nature is a God-sized task. Creator worship gives us the humility to acknowledge our own fallibility because God is the standard of truth. Third paragraph, the question is, who has the right, the trustworthiness, the goodness, and the authority to render the verdict about who we really are? Social Justice B answers, we do. This is really good. Okay, we do. That's what it, the way it answers. Herein lies one of the deepest problems with idolizing the self as sovereign. The omnipotence demanding task of constructing an entire person's nature is forced onto all our too shaky and finite shoulders. Tragically, we buckle under the impossible weight. It is not a coincidence that the meteoric rise of the gospel of autonomous self-making since the 1960s, notice how he attributes religious language to this viewpoint, okay? He attributes religious language to this viewpoint of self-making since the 1960s corresponds with a crescendo of brokenness. From 1960 to the turn of the 21st century, America doubled its divorce rate, tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime rate, quintupled its prison population, sextupled out-of-wedlock births, and septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage. Okay? That's what worshiping self gets you. That's what a lack of conservative Christians being salt and light breeds. Okay? God's grace is such that it can prevail over these things. It can and will prevail over these things. There are promises all over Scripture about that. Okay? Promises all over Scripture about that. I don't really feel the need to explain that further. He said that pretty well, I think. Okay? He said that pretty well. Idol of State, page 33. Yes? Okay. Uh huh. And that is also being, um, it's missing. Mm hmm. Because humility says that I don't have the answer to everything. Mm hmm. Somebody else has got a better idea than me. Right. I am not the most smart, I am not the strongest. Mm hmm. Okay. So that's not that's not having humility. Humility. Uh, so I agree. I didn't address that because I think uh, I didn't give you a one-word definition of everything he's been saying. All I'm saying but, is you're going to have me, the Creator. Mm-hmm. If you're going to see that you're sinful, 
Right. The Lord has. Right. The Lord has all the answers. And I think that's kind of the point that he's making even in this book. If we look at that first paragraph again on page 32, how does he summarize it? Look at the last sentence. Creator worship gives us the humility to acknowledge our own fallibility because God is the standard of truth. So that's that first paragraph. Right. Correct. That's the. Is, I don't have any correct. That's totally different than. Um, that, that's huge. To follow your heart, to be true to themselves, and dream up their own identity. I'm never wrong. So why would I need God? Right. I think that's the point he's trying to make in that section. I think that's the point he's trying to make in that section. So we're getting close to the cutoff here. So let me read a couple more sections real quick, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll break, okay? So page 33, the idol of state. Once we abolish God, the government becomes God. First paragraph, last sentence. First paragraph, last sentence. That's the most important sen- sentence in that section. It literally summarizes everything that we should be thinking about from that. Remember back to Jeremiah 44. There's a reason that I pointed us to that passage. Who became God to the Israelites? Egypt. In what ways? Their gods became their gods and the state became their god. Why? They worshipped false gods and broke the second command, uh, first commandment. And then they broke the second commandment also. And they looked to God, those gods for false provision. Or, or I'm sorry, for, for provision in a false way. Okay, for provision in a false way. Remember their grumbling in the, in the desert, right? That is what we are having happen today in the United States with the welfare system. When you look to the state for something that God did not create it for, that is what happens. It's the same thing. All right, social acceptance. This is probably, I'm going to try to speed up here. This is probably the biggest idol of the right and the left, in a way. I know, I, it's very difficult to say which one's the biggest, okay? But social acceptance. What do we mean by social acceptance? He says, I don't believe that most Christians embrace social justice B to set out to deny the godhood of God. Rather, they set out to do justice and combine it with an innocuous desire to be liked and relevant. Okay? The difference between the right and left on this is that the left makes this readily apparent in terms of how they talk about these feelings, and the right readily is unwilling to talk a negative thing about their neighbor, if, even if it's truthful. Okay? even if it's truthful. Look at the evangelical leaders that 15 years ago I would have looked to as examples, and you'll find it all over the place. Albert Moeller, Russell Moore, okay, who have compromised themselves on this issue. Okay, on this issue. They want to be liked, and they want to maintain their place of social acceptance more than they want to stand for the truth of God here. Okay, that's an idol of the right just as much as it is on the left. It's really easy to see it on the left. Sometimes it's easy to miss it on the right. Okay, remember how I said these bleed both ways? These bleed both ways. So in conclusion, it is not wrong to be thankful for blessings which God has given you. Food, shelter, financial uh, stability, living in America, peace with your neighbors, a good reputation, which is one of the requirements for an elder, Okay, but it is incredibly wrong to place your trust in these things. To place your trust in these things. And to go along to get along with ungodliness in whatever form is sinful. Okay, is sinful. To fit in, to maintain your status, to go along to get along and deny what God's word says is sinful. We cannot place our worship on the created but must give God his due as the creator, 
as he requires all mankind to worship him rightly as the true God and in the way that he's prescribed. Okay? Any questions to end us here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's displayed. So he mentioned Romans 1 and how we worship the cre- creature rather than the creator. So that's displayed, and I actually was going to read this. We just ran out of time. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is uh, where uh, God gives the instructions to Israel that you will be cursed if you disobey in unfaithfulness or you will be blessed in faithfulness. Right in between those two comments of blessing and cursing, he said in uh, chapter 28, verses 47 and 48, he said, but they were not thankful to God in their hearts. Gratitude is the point of every blessing that we receive. You are not called to look on your blessing as privileges, but as blessings from God. Not privileges that you have not necessarily earned unless you took them by breaking God's law. Yes, amen, that is wrong. But they are to be received with gratitude from the Lord. Okay? That's humility. Recognizing the source of all good. All right. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. Uh, Lord, we pray that this would be a blessing to us, uh, that your word would ring true to our hearts, that we would reflect on our own issues in this way and also be good stewards of your truth and being salt and light to our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.